Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before your throne of grace this morning. We thank you for the remembrance of our Lord Jesus Christ as we partook in the elements this morning. And Father, I pray that as we turn to your word, that through your spirit you will convict us where conviction is necessary. You'll confront us, shape us and refine us. That's our desire. We pray this in the powerful name of Christ our Saviour. Amen. Not about you, but one of the most uh, helpful things for me when I go into a new town or a, a new district is to, to rock up to the information centre. And you say, well, why would you do that? Well, if you know nothing about the town, it's a good place to start. You can, you can grab maps, you can grab brochures, you can very quickly find out about the place that you're, you're visiting. And I remember one of the most impactful instances of this in our particular life as a, a family, and it was very beneficial for us, was when we visited uh, Pearl Harbor. We were coming out of the States, out of seminary, and uh, we were scraping our dollars together to try and get and see some of the sites around Hawaii, and we, we came across uh, a very wise person who says, don't go through a tour operator, don't do anything like that. The first 200 people to get to Pearl Harbor every day get in free. We thought, fantastic. So we got the kids out of bed at five in the morning. No, not quite. <laughs> we, we wanted to be in those first 200. So we, um, we arranged and we, we got there. And the first 30 minutes of the tour were the most beneficial. They ushered us into a room and they, they showed us a historical video of what happened on the 7th of December, 1941. And as we saw the recreation of the horror and surprise of, of those events, and then subsequently as we travelled around the harbour, we had a real sense of the history of the place. You know what? The first two chapters of the book of Judges are very much like that. Very much like a historical film where it recounts the, the history of God's people post the conquest. They've come out of Egypt, the Lord has promised them the land, and they said, you're now about to go into the land to conquer it, and then we have this 400-year history in the, in the book of Judges. But these first two chapters are significant because they give us the historical overview, they give us the information on what's going to happen in the next 20-odd chapters. These chapters are essential in understanding the issues for the people that are represented in the book of Judges. Last week, you would learn that Israel is in substantial control of the promised land. You would have read, and let's, let's turn with your Bibles to Judges chapter 1. You would have read of the, the clear, successful nature of the conquest. God's people were clearly successful. They inherited the land. Um, they also had some slaves and they were being fruitful. 
even though, as you'd learned, they were disobedient. You know, to, to sum up chapter 1, you, you probably could put this type of framework around it. You could say that Israel as a nation was pragmatically successful. You say, well, what do you mean by pragmatically successful? Well, if you're another nation looking upon this nation and what they were doing in the conquest, you would say, of course they're successful. They have the land, they have slaves, they have the spoils of their conquests. Do you know what? They were spiritual failures. They may have been pragmatically successful, but they were spiritual failures. You say, oh, hold on, Nathan, maybe that's a bit harsh. You read the back end of chapter 1 and you, you list through some of the tribes. Remember, Israel was made up of 12 tribes and each of the tribes were allotted certain parts of the land that they would conquer. First part of the chapter, you see Judah and Simeon conquering in a way that's acceptable, but then you, you have this constant refrain in the back part of chapter 1. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Ephraim did not drive out the inhabitants. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Naphtali did not drive out inhabitants. What they did is they made a covenant with the people inside those cities that are meant to conquer. And it led to apostasy. They failed to do as God had commanded. God had clearly stated, drive those people out. And we'll dive into that a little bit more in the next few moments. So Israel is dominant, but is not obedient. And Israel's blatant disobedience leads to compromise. And the tolerance of the culture around about them leads them to apostasy. Can you see the slippery slope? From serving God, serving Yahweh, to being influenced by the culture around about them, to apostasy and spiritual failure. Not a great report card. Israel had forgotten that God was divinely adequate in providing the land and the victory. Joshua 1, 2 states this, that come up with me into the, um, where is it? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. A promise of God. The victory and the land is yours because God is giving it to you. And that's repeated in verse 4, verse 19, verse 22. God's plan in, in this conquest could be summed up in this way. His plan wasn't about the pragmatics of taking the land, about the glory of the conquest, about those sorts of things. But God's motivation for the people to take the land was purely spiritual. God's motivation was that his people, the people he loved, the people he redeemed, the people he had saved from Egypt, 
the people he had promised to great blessing. That they would even just keep the first commandment. What is the first commandment? Work with me and go back to Exodus chapter 20. The first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above, for that is, for that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. If you want a further warning, walk with me over to Exodus chapter 34. Very insightful in light of what we're reading in the, in the book of Judges. Turn with me to Exodus 34. Let's read together. Verse 11. This is the Lord commanding Moses and hence commanding the people. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Pezzarites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. Circle that. And lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down the asherim. You shall not worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. And you'll take their daughters and you'll take their sons and their daughters who whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. Pretty clear. As you enter the land, destroy them. Have nothing to do with them because... I'm concerned about your spiritual state, Israel. I want you to thirst after me. I want you to be my God and my God alone. Doesn't stop. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1 to 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, seven nations more numerous and mighty than, than yourselves, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, you must devote them to complete destruction. Why? You shall not make a covenant with them. You shall so show them no mercy. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For you will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. A violation of the first commandment. God's purpose in driving out the inhabitants of the land is spiritual. Now let's continue with the prelude in Judges chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles, let's turn to Judges chapter 2. We'll read uh, from verse 6. 
when Joshua dismissed, and this is retrospective, okay? You've got to realize these first two chapters aren't in a chronological order. It's the writer of the judges just looking at the history of the people in a retrospective type nature. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. They buried him with the boundaries of his inheritance in Tamatharas in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gehesh. And all the generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation. This generation arose after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. In this short paragraph, you have a summary of what went on for the first 60 to 80 years post the conquest. You have, in the days of Joshua, a time of Yahweh's great work. Yahweh was going before the people and driving out the inhabitants of the land. And the response of the nation was they served God. And then you have the elders who survived um, post-Joshua. They were with Joshua as they conquered the land and they, they were obviously ministering amongst the people. And their memory of Yahweh was wonderful. They remembered Yahweh's great work. They remember how he divided the the sea. They remembered how the walls of Jericho fell. They remembered how they continually, the Lord went before them. And the response of the people was, they served Yahweh. And then in verse 10, we have this sad Sad, sad, sad response of what had gone on. By the third generation, what does God's word tell us? And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. It's not that they did not know about the Lord. Of course they knew about the Lord. They they still had the tribal sense in which they were living. They knew about the Lord. They, they sort of knew who Yahweh was, but they did not know Yahweh. They had no personal relationship with Yahweh. If you actually blow the Hebrew apart a bit here, a better translation would be this. And they did not want to know Yahweh. Their hearts were turning cold. They did not want to know Yahweh. They did not want to know the work that he had done. And you can just assume from here they they were violating many parts of the Old Testament covenants. They, They were violating Deuteronomy 6, clearly. Deuteronomy 6 talks about the responsibility of parents. 
to teach their children the ways of the Lord. They were violating worshipping together, perhaps. Well, they may have been just meeting to worship and it was just ritualistic. It was just form. There was no heart. There was no relationship. There was no remembrance of the, the wonderful redemption and the promises given to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that this land was the land given by God. Whose land was it? Folks, who land, whose land was it? God's land. God had provided. And that was probably part of the problem of the first chapter because what happened even amongst Judah and Simeon, they tried to coerce the capture of the land as opposed to allowing God to do it. The canonization of the Israeli culture was slowly and surely removing any allegiance to covenant obedience. Within a very short period of time, 60 to 80 years, God was removed from his rightful place of worship and honor. A complete violation of the first commandment. Forget about the rest of the commandments, it doesn't matter, this one has gone. When the house of cards falls, the house of cards falls. You remove one house of one card from the house of card and it collapses. And this is what's happening here with this nation. The very foundation and pillar of what God called them to, obedience. Have no other gods before me. Was ripped away inside a 60 or 80 year period. So let's read about the nature of Israel's apostasy. Verses 11 to 13. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them, and they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. This is a, what we call in literature a, a little chiasm where each line tells us some truth but the key focus of uh, this type of style of writing is the, the two middle lines there as you can see. That's the point the author is trying to make. The nature of Israel's apostasy was clearly seen in those two middle lines. They pursued other gods. This is not something that snuck up on them. They pursued them. They were active in the way they went after these gods. And we'll explain that in a little minute. And they bowed down and worshipped them. And as a result, they're abandoning Yahweh. They abandon the one who has delivered them, the one who has promised them many things. And they serve the Baals. And the Astros. Astros can also be translated Ashtarts. 
I think it's a better translation, and I'll tell you why in a minute. Because Ashtard is the female equivalent of the male Baal. Okay, so you've got a tart and you've got a Baal. And we'll work that out in a minute, what that actually means. So what is so repugnant about Baal worship? What is so repugnant about that? I'll give you a bit of a lesson on this. Firstly, the most repugnant thing is it violates the first commandment, right? There's no other gods before me. I'm a jealous God. And you see, what God does when he takes his people out of the land of Egypt, he gives them the first five books of the Old Testament. He gives them the Pentateuch. He needs to give them a history, a lesson on who he is. And in Genesis, we see a major countercultural document. Countercultural to the Canaanites, countercultural to the Egyptians, countercultural to any Near Eastern culture that was around at the time. Because this Genesis account firstly gives the idea that sex is a human activity and not a divine activity. It's a beautiful thing given by God for humans to enjoy, to fill the earth, to procreate. It's not a divine activity. You see, Yahweh the God of the universe, the God we worship, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, has no wife, has no consort. Genesis gives us the account that Yahweh's acting in history. He acts in creation. He creates all things by the word of his mouth. He judges through a flood. He calls and he preserves all the patriarchs. You think about the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and you think about the sticky situations they get themselves into. (laughs) And yet God preserves them through that. He delivers them from Egypt. He redeems them. See, unlike Baal and Ashtar, Yahweh's not pulsating in nature. Even though nature is under his control, Yahweh sits enthroned on high, ruling his creation. He preserves and redeems. He's not like the God of the Canaanites or the gods of the Egyptians or any of the other ancient peoples. See, in essence, Baal was, Baal worship was all about sensuality. All about sensuality. See, Baal was the storm god and who's also the fertility god. And for the Canaanites, you know, fertility was the name of the game. It really was. We want fertile crops. We want fertile livestock. We want fertile families. And as I said, now Baal, the nature god that he was, naturally had a female consort named Ashtart 
And for Canaanite theology and agriculture, the, the fertility of the land depended upon the, the sexual relationship between Baal and Ashtart. The revival even of nature, the, the, the fertility of nature was due to this intercourse between Baal and his consort. But you know what? The old Canaanite uh, faithful didn't just want Baal to... Uh, they just didn't want to sit back and say, let Baal do it. There was no sort of let go and let Baal thinking among them. Instead their cry was, serve Baal with gladness. And hence the heart of their worship was sacred prostitution as an act of worship by Canaanites they would have sex with a holy whore which in their minds would sort of encourage Baal to get on with it to do the same thing with Ashtar and in their thinking this would bring about rain, grain, flow of oil and wine imagine what was happening when there's a famine in the land Famine in the land, and so the Canaanites want to help Baal out, jock him into action. Not working. So then what they do? Well, let's sacrifice our children. Let's sacrifice our little ones. Let's put them on the, in the arms of Baal. Let's burn them and make a sacrifice and then perhaps Baal will wake up and listen. Folks, Baal's not there. He's an idol. He's in the imagination of the people. Can you see why God abhorred Baal worship? You see, the great difference between Worshipping Baal and worshipping Yahweh was Baal had to be coerced into action. Whereas with God, all that is required is trust. When we worship God, all that is required is trust. Because God, by his very own word and his very own nature, promises great things. For instance, when it comes to fertility, let's think about Deuteronomy chapter 11. This is a wonderful promise given by God to his people. And they knew this before they came into the land. Deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 10. It's what God says through Moses. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land in which you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. Not the sacred prostitution of Baal worship. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it. That's the land from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, once again, God's 
prerequisite in the land is all spiritual. It's about worshipping of Him and Him alone. He will give you rain for your land in its season. The early rain, the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and in your wine and in your oil, and He will give you grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest you be deceived. And you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Who grants all things? Who grants all things? God. In whom shall we put our trust? God. See, what caused this nation to turn away from God? I think there's probably three things. They failed to maintain a distinction or separation between themselves and the paganism that was surrounding them. They failed to combat a godless culture. They should have driven them out like God had said. Instead, they were saddling up to this culture and learning, oh, crops and rain and land comes from an act of prostitution at the Temple of Baal. Perhaps we'll try that. They forgot who God was. You can see some similarity between that and the 21st century, can you not? Sometimes we become so infected by the culture in which we live, we take on the cultural values and the cultural norms. We forget to separate ourselves for the sake of Christ. Sure, we don't have the mandate to go and wield the sword against our enemies, but the principle remains. We must retain a distinct separation from the culture. We need to stand for truth and holiness as followers of Christ. We don't do that in our own power. We do that in the power of the Spirit that's within us. We rest on the power of God, just like the Israelites should have been doing. They should have been resting upon the power of God. So the question for us is, do we rest on the same power of God? Or do we cave into the culture? Do we just want to blend in? Do in essence, do we become as canonized as God's ancient people? That's the first cause. They never separated themselves, never made a distinction that they served and worshipped Yahweh. Do you make a distinction in your own life that you serve and worship the risen Christ? second thing is I think one of the causes of their apostasy was their real lack of experiential religion in the succeeding generation so their worship became cold it became ritualistic it became just a set of forms as opposed to a worship that was infused and empowered by a love for God 
They may have known Yahweh, but they did not want to know Yahweh. Their worship was cold and lifeless. They were thinking that their children would just ape into more Yahwehists, I guess. But their children needed to be confronted with the, the beauty of who God was. They needed to be converted. They needed to be regenerated into a living and active union with Christ. So what Paul calls in Philippians surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The third part I think of Israel's failure was they failed to remember. They failed to remember who saved them. They failed to remember who would provide for them. They failed to remember who grants them victory. And their failure to remember is directly linked to an ingratitude. So they fail to give thanks. So I think the Bible is really clear. When we fail to remember our salvation, amnesia produces apostasy. Amnesia produces apostasy. That's why it's such a blessing every Sunday morning we come here and we remember the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. That should thrill your hearts. It should fill you with a, a deep-seated gratitude and thanks for the God who has given all for you to have a relationship with him. It's a representation of the fact that your sin has been dealt with. Your apostasy has been dealt with because of Christ who is in your place, has granted you his righteousness, his perfect life. Do you experience that? Do you have that deep-seated relationship with Christ and certainty that you know you are secure in his hands? If you do, praise But if you don't, seek him. Turn and repent. Fall at his feet at his grace and his mercy. Further read. Let's go to uh, verse 14. Judges 2. This is God's response. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel or burned against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned. And as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity. 
by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people has transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them whether they take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. This is the heart of this historical account of Joshua. If you want to know about the book of Judges, this is it. The people fall into apostasy, but look what happens. God, in his grace and his mercy, provides a deliverer. This deliverer is not based on the people calling out in repentance. Far from it. These people call out because they are oppressed and they're afflicted, but they're not repenting. They're not calling out and tearing down the, the, the Baal worship. They're not tearing down the astropos. They're not tearing down any of that stuff. They're continuing to say, Lord, just, it's tough. Our enemies are heavy upon us. It's not a call of repentance. It's a call of comfort, if you like. It's not a call understanding that they violated loving God with all their heart, soul, and mind. But God is so gracious. What does he do in the response of this rebellion? He provides deliverers. Yahweh is the source and the power and the authority of the judge. The judge's purpose was not in a judicial sense. It was to draw the people back to understanding that salvation comes from God. That was the primary role of the judge, was to point them back to Yahweh, saying, worship him and him alone. And the judges became instruments of deliverance from the nation's external enemies. So there was a physical element to the judging as well. But deliverance was always an act of God's compassion and grace. Always. You see, I think verse 19, or verse 18, is the key verse in the book of Judges. For the Lord was moved to pity. The Lord was moved to pity. He was moved to compassion. He was moved to chat. He was moved to display mercy when he could have destroyed them utterly. It's moved to mercy. And what's the people's response? Just note the people's response. I find this horrific. They did not listen to their judges. Whenever God raised the judges, he saved them, provided salvation, Verse 19, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than they previously were. And that's what you'll see in the cycle of judges. Each judge that we will study over the next 11 weeks, each judge is dealing with the people who are more divisive, more godless, 
more canonized in every way as you go through the cycle. They did not listen. They hoard after other gods. They groaned about their situation and impression, but there was no indication of repentance. And they transgressed God's covenant promises. They were stubborn. And therefore God continues to test their heart. That's what the back end of chapter 2 is about. It says, okay, the people will stay. The oppressors will stay because I'm going to test your heart to see whether you actually are following me. It's a rhetorical question because it's clear that they weren't. And then we, you see the cycle, the notes that I gave you. I think there's two things going on here. I've given a bit of a picture on the back. There's a pattern of Israel's experience during the pre-monarch period. I think this, this explains the cycle of the judges from Israel's perspective. There's apostasy, there's oppression, there's groaning, and there's deliverance. From God's perspective, it's different. God is angered at his people and their sin. He provides a punishment through the oppression of other nations, but then we have his great pity and compassion and then deliverance. I won't read the the first six verses of chapter 3. I'll let you do that yourself, but there is consequences for Israel's disobedience. And the summary, you could say, if you go back to chapter 2, verse 7, where the people served the Lord, by 3, verse 6, the cycle is complete, and they served the Baals. So what? So what does this mean for you and I in the 21st century? For those of us who claim to follow Christ, what lessons can we learn from Israel's history? First lesson, sin entraps, folks. Sin entraps. Even though Christ has paid the penalty for your sin, if you choose to walk in a way where you are slipping into a culture slipping away from God, sin will entrap you and you will pay the consequences. Whether it's a relationship you enter into, knowingly being disobedient, sin will entrap you. Whether it's an addiction or an atrocity like, I think modern day pornography and things like that just, it's no different to the canonization of of Israel and their, their, you know, prostitute carries on, but it's insidious. And this stuff will entrap you. Materialism will entrap you. Our culture is alluring us with all sorts of things. What happens is we are more concerned about the temporal than the eternal. We're more concerned about being nice with our neighbors as opposed to proclaiming Christ and the truth of him crucified. Unfortunately, our affections get shaped by our culture around about us and not shaped by God's word and his marvelous grace towards us. And you know what? This, this process doesn't happen in an instant, right? It's like erosion. It's slow. We compromise here, we compromise there, and all of a sudden we are far from God. 
Our cold-heartedness and lack of thankfulness leads to distance from God. But you know the wonderful thing, the God of all grace opens his arms and says, repent. We can call out in the wonderful name of Christ, who is full of grace and truth. You see, unlike the Old Testament saints here in the Judges, we have the Spirit of God within us. And God's Spirit is there. He indwells us. He empowers us. He refines us. He convicts us of our sin. He confronts us and He encourages us. How does He do all those things? Through His Word. The Spirit illuminates His Word in our hearts to change our behavior and change our actions and change our affections. So let's not be a people like the people in the time of the judges, the people who started well but eventually abandoned the Lord. Let's walk in the power of the Spirit, rest our affections in the God of all grace and compassion. And I think the writer in Hebrews sums it up well, and this is where we'll end today with these thoughts. So the music team can come on up while we're doing this, if you'd like. Because we're going to sing a wonderful closing song. Hebrews 12, verse 1 says this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witness, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you want to deal with the, the entanglements of sin in your life, look to Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. Rest in him. Let's not be like the Israelites who rested in the cross.